Coordinated bomb and arson attacks hit Bangkok. Manila's link to white extremism and mass murder. Has Hong Kong reached a point of no return? A Singaporean gamer dodges national service to go to war in California. And our look at Bangkok's most endangered and vulnerable community. Welcome to the Coconuts Podcast, our look at the latest and greatest reporting from our eight newsrooms in Southeast Asia and Hong Kong. I'm Todd Varese, and I'm the managing editor of Coconuts Bangkok. And I'm associate editor Tara Kamaltanavith. Tara. Hello. How are you? Ooh, I'm, I'm good, but it's been quite a week. <laughs> we should say, you know, we record the show late Thursday afternoon. Right. And then we usually burn the midnight oil editing it, which means that if something, say, explodes on Friday morning... Right. Then Little did we know that as soon as we left the studio, things were about to go down. That night around 6 p.m. was when the bomb scare occurred. Well, our colleague Chayani Itipongmeti called in. She was over at Siam, and she was there when it was shut down right. uh, due to a suspicious package left in front of the National Police Headquarters. Right. Right near... Uh, the BTS Siam. Siam Paragon, all of that. Re- like, a really, really major downtown spot in Bangkok. Originally, they said it was a bomb, then they backpedaled from that. Yeah. But that was, you know, but nothing blew up. No. Not that night, anyway. Friday morning, I got up at dawn to go cover the speech. Actually, I almost didn't, because I was lying in bed, and I thought, eh, maybe I don't need to go. But you got up and did it for Mike Pompeo. (laughs) Yeah, the U.S. Secretary of State was here, so I went to that. And it was walking out of that that we heard that some explosion had happened uh, outside of what is Thailand's largest building, at right. the, one of the BTS SkyTrain stations. So I hightailed it down there to cover that, and then throughout the course of the day, it would turn out that at least eight other bombs exploded all around the capital. A couple people were injured. Right, and, and this was the first bombing in Bangkok since terrorists destroyed the Erewhon Shrine and killed 20 people exactly four years ago. Were you there for that, Todd? Yeah, every couple years, uh, you know, Bangkok never gets boring. Every couple right. years, there's always there's something going off. And so here we are a week later. Nine suspects have, have been detained. Just yesterday, they found another unexploded bomb at some market in Pratunam. Yes, yes. So it, it's after, after the f- officials said there were nine bombs, more bombs kept popping up everywhere. And officials right. have been a little, you know, tight-lipped about letting information out. Yeah, and that fits. I mean, that fits previous patterns. Even after the 2015 bombing of the Erdogan Shrine, in most incidents, look, Thailand, whether it's a matter of loss of face, national reputation, tourism, never wants to broadcast to the world that they have a problem. Right. I and mean, we know in the deep south, 15 years, uh, it's creeping up toward. It's like seven, eight thousand people have been killed right. in a 15-year insurgency down there. And most signs for these attacks point to it being carried out by separatists in the Deep South. You know, the attacks had all the calling cards when it comes to, like, methodology. And the suspects arrested so far have been from the southernmost provinces where violence has raged quietly for 15 years. And in the previous attacks that have been blamed on the southern separatists, um, Mother's Day three years ago, I think, there were... Uh, a, a similar spate of bombings that hit about four provin- four or five provinces. I think, I think four people were killed then. But uh, they mostly, I, they could have been much more lethal. Mm-hmm. Um, these have appeared to fit this pattern of kind of, certainly with international leaders and press all assembled here, it kind of fits an MO of like these cries for attention. Right. And so top bureaucrats, including um, 
Deputy Prime Minister Prawit Wong Suwan has you know, aired suspicions that it has to do with deep, the, the conflicts in the Deep South. But still, Prime Minister Prayut chan has held off from assigning blame. And he's saying that investigations are still underway and things are too early to conclude. Well, that's, that is the responsible thing to do. Right. Um, I would say, if anything, there's been much of less of an attempt to deflect blame or pretend it's not about the Southern Separatist movement. Everyone seems to sort of accept that. Yeah. Well, and unfortunately, these things seem to be cyclical. The negotiations have stalled for years down there. Progress hasn't been made. So we fall into a familiar pattern. And it's, it's, a, you know, it's a news pattern, too. These things have a natural tendency to sort of sweep away all the other things being talked about hmm. um, and push all these other matters out of mind. Uh, actually, uh, Friday morning, you and I were basking in the glow of a news feature we'd put out that we're pretty proud of. Right. Um, about these fears in this sprawling, you know, community of Bangkok's poorest residents about eviction. And we were expecting, hoping that would get some conversation going. Uh, yeah. And then boom, boom, boom. Yeah. So... A few weeks ago, I actually went and talked to some of the 100,000 people or so that is afraid of life after being evicted from Klong Thai. They told me that most don't know what to do afterwards, or they don't even know when they will be evicted. But more on that later. We'll dive into that and tell you all about Klong Thai after we run through our headlines from this week. Hong Kong is on the brink. On one side, widespread anger over a single issue has all but morphed into a popular uprising against the pro-Beijing leadership and police. On the other, a government that seems unwilling to give any ground. Looming over the impasse, signals from Beijing that People's Liberation Army soldiers may be dispatched to restore order in the semi-autonomous territory. In one disturbing measure of how much it's eclipsed 2014's Umbrella Revolution, police fired 800 tear gas canisters in one day Monday. That compares to 87 fired in two months five years ago. Refusing to back down, Residents have moved to paralyze the city, shutting down transportation and organizing strikes. In response, Chief Executive Carrie Lam has warned that protesters are pushing the city to the verge of what she called a very dangerous situation. Coconuts Hong Kong Managing Editor Stuart White. Some analysts think that Beijing is taking a wait-and-see approach. The thinking goes that stonewalling will force the protesters to escalate their actions to the point that they start to alienate everyday Hong Kongers. And at that point, the movement would just fizzle. Another alternative would be for the local government to actually make some modest concessions. One moderate pro-Beijing lawmaker has actually suggested that, but the rest of his camp doesn't appear to be on board. And that brings us to the nuclear option, which would be letting the People's Liberation Army off the leash. As much as mainland officials are trying to suggest that this is a possibility, they've also stopped short of drawing any lines in the sand. And even Beijing probably knows that involving the PLA would spell the end of Hong Kong as we know it. So how the whole thing resolves itself is really anyone's guess. But there's every indication that the uneasy status quo is set to hold in the near term. Protests are planned at the airport over the next three days. We have marches planned on Hong Kong Island, in Kowloon, and in the new territories. There's no reason to expect that those protests won't end with the same kind of clashes that have become increasingly common over the last few weeks. The Singapore government declared this week that it is more important to defend Watchpoint Gibraltar than the city-state. Esports athlete Figo Chua, who goes by Ezelia online, was given a deferral from entering the national service to compete in the Overwatch World Cup set for November in California. 
Chua was meant to enter the compulsory service next week, which would have forced the Overwatch team to find a replacement. So the dedicated gamer decided to apply for deferral, which was granted last week. Team spokesman Nicholas Tay, however, said that Chua was an excuse just to get his game on, but also to complete his college courses. Still, he admitted that most short-notice requests were usually denied, so the Overwatch tournament definitely was a factor in the decision. Oh man, how times have changed, huh? When I was growing up, online gaming was the spawn of the devil. Do you remember that year that the Thai government gave out cash for people to stop playing Ragnarok, the online gaming arena that was really popular at the well, time? Well, I was probably too busy farming fire-resist gear to raid the Molten Core to, <laughs> to notice it that year. I actually, that was one of the games I actually played, and my parents made me quit two weeks before that happened. I was pretty pissed. Am I too old to get back into gaming now? Have fun in GG. <laughs> Last weekend's horrifying mass murder double whammy in the United States brought to attention one of the darkest shit-stained orifices of the internet, which has become a grooming factory for losers with access to guns and dreams of achieving a new high score. 8chan, a message board that set out to out-awful the 4chan message board, once again found itself the platform of choice when Patrick Cruzius published his pathetic paranoia a manifesto is too kind a word here, to justify the murder of families shopping at a Texas Walmart. That's when most of the world heard about A-Chan for the first time, along with the fact that it's run by an American father and son team out of Manila. Jim Watkins and his son Ron have reportedly been living there for 15 years and took over A-Chan some years ago from its founder, another U.S. expat in Manila who has since disavowed it. It was used three times this year to announce mass murders, including the mosque massacre in New Zealand and a synagogue shooting in California. The site's currently offline after being deplatformed by key infrastructure providers. But a look at the Twitter of Ron Watkins, who looks like a homelier version of incel mass murderer Elliot Rogers, shows he's actively trying to bring it back online. This all seems news to Filipino authorities, who said this week they're looking into whether the site was indeed operating from there. Leave it to one of the world's most obnoxious celebrity clans to pour salt in the wound left by the staggering theft of Malaysian wealth with one of its greatest symbols. Really rubbing it in was the fact that it wasn't a Kardashian, but a Jenner, this time Kylie, who's set to spend 1.2 million US dollars renting the former superyacht owned by fugitive Malaysian financier Jolo. If the story laid out by prosecutors, the FBI, and stunning novel Billion Dollar Whale are to be believed, Jolo, through sheer force of personality and boggling deceit, fooled governments from Malaysia to Abu Dhabi, Wall Street, Leonardo DiCaprio, and many, many more along the way to pilfering a mind-boggling $4.5 billion from Malaysia's 1MDB fund. Perhaps Kylie's hoping to upgrade her famous-only-for-being-famous celebrity with a whiff of the real thing, given that DiCaprio, Paris Hilton, Alicia Keys, and Jolo's former Victoria's Secret model girlfriend, Miranda Kerr, all partied on it at some point, before everything came crashing down and Jolo went into hiding. Keep it classy, Kylie. Two dolphins and other animals, including crocodiles, monkeys, and snakes, were rescued from a hotel in North Bali yesterday, following years of alleged abuse. The rescue came after a dolphin kept there as a tourist attraction died over the weekend. The Melka Hotel, which claims to have a permit for protected animals such as dolphins, offers daily dolphin shows and allows guests to swim with the creatures. 
They also offer dolphin-assisted therapy, a discredited practice believed to address psychological problems and developmental disabilities. On the website, the hotel claims that all the dolphins are rescues and say the cost of caring for them justifies charging guests to interact with them. But U.S.-based Dolphin Project says that the dolphins are mistreated and intentionally starved to keep them motivated to perform for guests. All dolphins rescued from the hotel were, quote, suffering in deplorable conditions, the group said in a statement. Two more dolphins were still being kept at the hotel as they were not healthy enough to be moved. The Dolphin Project plans to evacuate them soon. And now, my story on Bangkok's Klongthai community. <laughs> not far from luxury shopping malls and fancy hotels packed with tourists, the community of Klongthai spreads along the Chao Phraya River. To outsiders, it's Bangkok's biggest slum. But for the tens of thousands of people living there, some for generations, it's the only home they've ever known. But after seven decades, everything they know will soon be demolished to make way for a new riverside mega mall. Well, that means redeveloping what has been a depressed waterfront property into high-end attractions for the capital's wealthiest residents. It also means forcing out upwards of 15,000 families, or 100,000 people. One of them is street vendor Rachani Chiasuwan, who sells snacks on a borrowed stall in a small, grimy alley. One hand hangs limp by Rachani's side as she tells me that she's partially paralyzed. Still, her meager sales keep three children fed, one of whom has a mental disability. Rachani, who says she was born here, says she is terrified about the future. It's going to be a struggle. I don't know how I'll relocate. I can barely make ends meet as is. I live from hand to mouth every day. I haven't thought about what I'm going to do yet. Klongthai came to be about 70 years ago, when people looking for work in the capital began settling there. Centrally located next to a busy dock that was the nation's main port at the time, employment was plentiful. Today, shipping has moved elsewhere, and the community, which covers about 80 hectares, is a warren of tenements and makeshift housing. What employment there is consists of menial labor in the sprawling nearby market. On a recent afternoon, Port Authority officials came to meet with residents. The meeting grew angry as residents complained that they were being kept in the dark about what was happening or when they would be evicted. Many sounded resigned to what would happen, such as one middle-aged woman I spoke to who refused her name in fear of reprisal. We know that the land belongs to the government and that they have the right to do whatever they want to it. But I wish they would consider our livelihood when they make those decisions. Most people I spoke to felt the same way, excluded and disrespected. I had a hard time finding anyone interested in any of the three alternatives which has been put forward by the government. The first option is moving into 25-story condos built by the government, which will be the size of tiny studios and unable to fit a full family. Though rent is free, residents would have to pay maintenance fee and utility bills. For Rachini, the disabled vendor and Klongthai native, the very concept of paying a monthly fee is terrifying. I don't know how I'd make the monthly fee or effectively move around in such a tall building. Rachini said, explaining that her arm is paralyzed due to an old injury. 
So far, only two elevators have been proposed in each building. The second option is to take possession of a very small plot of undeveloped land far away on the outskirts of town. Somehow, the evicted residents would have to build their own homes there. The third solution is some sort of comparable cash payout, but no one has said how much that would be. Sawan Bidin Le, who was selling sweets by the side of the road, said none of the options were appealing to her. I don't care about the building or the compensation. I don't want it. I just don't want to move. Look at how busy Klongte already is. Can you imagine just how more congested it will be if we all move into condos or a smaller piece of land? None of us wants to go. Most of us were born and raised here. Months of frustration came to a head at the meeting, where about 30 Klongthai residents confronted Port Authority officials. Just tell us when you want the land back. I think you know, but you won't tell us. An elder man yelled from the back of the room. One woman pleaded to know when they will get evicted so she can make plans accordingly. She added that it's caused debilitating stress in the community. The officials had no answer for them. The fear most frequently voiced by the people there is what's in store after they move. For many, the community is the closest thing to stability they have to barely scrape by. With that taken away from them, People like Rashini worry that life will unravel. This stand is the only way I make a living. If they move me, how will we eat? Well, thanks for that, Tara. I remember months ago when they announced that these condos were going to be built um, and there were all these news stories sort of applauding this government effort. Right. Um, no one, no one seemed to go and talk to these people and ask how they felt about it. Right. Um, and, and you did. So. And most of the time, it's talked about in the media. Everyone talks about how it will improve the, life, the livelihood and the quality of life of the residents. But no one has really asked them how they, they feel about right. it. Right, right. What's next? So the government is currently finalizing the plan. And until it is finalized and announced, the people will not know who or when will be evicted. But some people know that they'll be gone in a few months because a new highway is also being built to accommodate the mega mall. Mm. So I'll keep on going back and talking to the residents and see how they feel as the project develops. Well, that's it for us this week. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find all these stories and more at coconuts.co. Better yet, become a Coco Plus member at coconuts.co slash membership. From Bangkok, this is Todd Reese. And I'm Tara Kamaldanavis. Special thanks this week to Michelle Seagrave-Daly and our audio engineer, Inigo Manthagon, as well as our lovely host for Academy Studios in Bangkok's A-Square. The Coconuts podcast is written and produced by Todd Reese and Tara Kamalvatanath. Our executive producers are Byron Perry and Chad Williams. We'll see you next week. Bye.